Did I, am I doing this right? This mic is fancier than the mic we have. Our mic is from like a 1960s uh, news station, and, and you put it right there, and it's, uh, it's a little embarrassing. It's so great to be with you guys. Um, like he said, we are from Vero Beach. We have three boys um, who are 10, 8, and 3, and their ages keep changing, which makes it more difficult. Um, and so when I go to like a pharmacy and they ask for the birthday, I feel like the worst father in the world because I just, it's just the numbers and all that together. Just remembering their names is difficult, so birthdays is tough. Um, It's Pastor Appreciation Day from what uh, I've been told, and so let's just give honor to them. I know um, both of them probably probably hate that, but here's here's what I want you to know. Um, Usually in church world, we say a lot of things sometimes, uh, especially in social media, that's a lot of hype. You know, we put fire emojis and say everything's epic. And sometimes when we do that, um, we lose the power of words. And so I don't want to say this as fluff, um, but Kyle and Taryn are two of the most um, genuine people uh, that Ashley and I have the privilege to know. And here's what I love about them is they are willing to allow their lives to be interrupted for other people. Um, And they've been that way Um, I grew up knowing them uh, through youth camp and then also in college, and they're just genuine. They're the same people here um, at their home, wherever they're at, and so it's just an honor that I do not take lightly uh, to have the opportunity to speak into your life today, but to also just be with them, and and just I want to encourage you to pray for your pastors um, because many times we leave and we wonder and we think, am I I making a difference? Am I doing something? Um, And you know they are. Uh, but sometimes just remind them, just, just send them a text to say, hey, um, you know, you're making a difference. And here's what that looks like, because that ultimately is what we want to see more than anything. We just want to know that we are walking with you uh, through this journey of faith and we're encouraging you and equipping you. Um, and so it's such an honor, again, to be with you guys. We're going to be in the book of Exodus. Um, Exodus chapter one <clears throat> is where we're going to be this morning. Um, as I said, uh, Kyle and I went to college together, and, and Taryn as well, and, and one of the things about Kyle is, do you ever meet somebody, and they're, they seems like they're good at everything, um, and, and so you're like, man, what, what is it about this guy? Because he would just randomly be able to do things, like we would play sports, and he could play sports. I'm like, well, no, he's a sports guy, and then out of nowhere, out of like spare wood that he found, he whittles a guitar and begins to write music. Like, we're in, we're in college, and I'm just trying to make it to class. And he produced an album while we were college students, right? I mean, that's an incredible thing. And then uh, at their wedding, I got to be in the wedding. I don't know if somebody else couldn't be in there or what, but I was there. And, and they sang these worship songs, and it was just so beautiful. And it's just like, what can this guy uh, not do? And apparently, I have not found that yet. He is able to do everything uh, really well. So we are going to be talking about this idea of calling Because when we think of a pastor, we say, okay, that's his calling. But typically what we do is we think that the calling is for them, and then the rest of us just kind of work our jobs, and we're just trying to survive. But what we're going to see today is that for pastors, their greatest joy would come from seeing you faithfully walk out the calling God has on your life. More than anything else, it would be to see you connect with, find, and find clarity in the calling that God has placed on your life. But here's the challenge. Life is messy. Uh, Life is difficult. 
and we eventually become numb because we don't want to be hurt again, right? Uh, if you've ever looked through scripture, one of the worst diseases you'll see in the Bible is leprosy. Leprosy, historically, is one of the oldest recorded diseases and one of the worst. And here's why. Um, Dr. Paul Brand writes an incredible book called Fearfully and Wonderfully Made. And he talks about how God has designed our bodies. But he talks about leprosy. And here's what he says. Leprosy is the oldest recorded disease and one of the most dreaded. The horrible effects of leprosy come about because leprosy patients have lost their sense of pain. It attacks a single type of cell, the nerve cell. And when that cell falls silent, it no longer warns of danger. And the patients uh, quite literally destroy their own body. So here's how that works. If you have leprosy and you're using a hammer and, and you get a splinter in your hand, you don't feel that pain and the infection just continues to grow. Uh, if you step off a curb and you sprain your ankle, you don't feel that pain. And so you continually walk around on, on a sprained ankle and eventually it begins worse. Even just blinking. Um, if the nerve that triggers your eyelid to blink every few seconds is not lubricated by moisture, that eye dries out and the person becomes blind. So virtually all the devastating effects of leprosy come from one cell that falls silent. So what happens is when we stop feeling pain, it actually leads to death of our body. And if we look at that in a spiritual sense, when you're not in your calling, when you've allowed the mess of life to just let you become numb, and, and I don't know about you, but for me, that's kind of what I do, right? When, when too many people are pulling at me, when life is really difficult, I just find a way to kind of pull back Medicate, you know, you can, you can look at Netflix, you can, you can scroll through your feed, you can kind of escape and become numb. And leprosy is dangerous because when you stop feeling pain, it leads to death. And the same is true spiritually. When we allow the mess and the hurt of our life to cause us to be numb to the people around us, the ones we're supposed to serve, it leads to death in so many areas. And so we're going to look at a text today in Exodus chapter 1. Now, here's what's interesting, and I think we have this on a slide, is that uh, Egypt was once a good place for God's people, but it became a place of bondage. Okay, We think back to the story, and here's what we know. Joseph in Genesis was second in command. Um, and he had found a home in Egypt. He had brought his family together. But Joseph dies, and generations pass away, and a new leader, a new pharaoh, comes into office who does not know Joseph. But here's what we know. It's possible that he did not know Joseph. Rather, the original language points to the idea that he chose to ignore or look over the relationship that Joseph would have had with the past regime. And we'll, we'll see why in just a moment. But here's what's interesting which was once a place of peace and rest, actually became a place of bondage for God's people. And that's true for you and me. Think about this for a moment. What was once a good place in your life? Maybe your marriage, your job, uh, a relationship that you're in. Maybe at your job, you loved it for years and years and years, and now management has changed. Maybe they don't like your department. Maybe your current position is, is kind of being pushed to the side. And what was once a place for you of peace, a once was for you a place of calling, is now a place of, of bondage. And that's where God's people were at. They were in this place where they were flourishing and growing, and we'll see that in our text. So if you have your Bible, let's begin in verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt 
with Jacob, each with his household. Now, this is referring to about 430 years worth of time. And the book of Exodus is not to be read just by itself. It is, it, is, it is written with the intent of reading right with Genesis. And here's how we know. It literally starts with the word and. If you and I, which I can't, maybe you can, could read Hebrew, it would start with the word and. And so right away, the author of Exodus wants you to do something. They want you to connect the current situation with the very beginning, not just of Genesis, but all of creation. Right away, the author is saying, don't just think about this current moment, but understand that what they are experiencing is connected to the past in a very important way, okay? Now, verse 2 through 6, I'm going to spare reading you the genealogy. Um, Genealogies kill Bible reading programs more than anything else. You ever start and say, I'm going to read the Bible. It's a new year. And you're like, I love the Lord. And then you get to these names and you're like, the Hittite to Hamarite, and you're just like, ah, and you just start skipping. Well, here's why they're there. There's a lot of different reasons. Sometimes it was important to know who was related to who for purposes of land and family and heritage. But it was also a way to connect to the past. And here's why that was important. Because the politics of the day were constantly changing, right? In our own lives, the climate of things was constantly changing. The land and location was changing. But, geology, but, but the genealogies reminded the people that the same God who was with their ancestors is with them now. So Exodus is constantly calling back to Genesis to say, look, things are bad. But remember, there is this purpose in which we are called to live. And the scripture in Exodus is filled with that. In fact, if you skip down, you'll see it says in verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. That's almost a copy and paste from the book of Genesis. They're fulfilling that calling. They're growing as a people. It calls back again to the book of Genesis. And so what we see in just these few verses is what the Israelites could come to expect from God in their current situation was directly connected to how God treated them in the past. That's why it's so important to remember because there are moments, and we're going to kind of lean into this tension, where God feels absent. And Exodus tells us right away that if you've kind of become numb to that thing that God once called you to do, and you've allowed pain, and maybe you worked with people, and people let you down, and so you said, I'm going to stop serving. I'm going to stop viewing my job as a calling from God and just view it as just the nine-to-five grind. This verse calls us back and says there has been a plan since the beginning that you and I are a part of. That God is writing a story that is so much bigger. But here's what happens. Verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to the people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. History tells us that the reason this particular pharaoh was so paranoid is because he was a part of a regime that was actually native Egyptian, and the ones who were in leadership just before him were actually outsiders who became the central source of power in Egypt. So people not born in Egypt were ruling Egypt, and so when he comes in, he is absolutely paranoid that anyone who is not native Egyptian will cause problems and war. 
And God's people are growing to a large number. And his thought is, if someone from the inside once again comes in and rules, we will lose everything that is important to us. So out of that paranoia, out of that fear, he sets a plan in motion. Verse 11 says, Therefore he sent taskmasters over to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for the Pharaoh store cities. And verse 12 says, But the more they were oppressed... The more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service. In mortar and brick and all kinds of water or work in the field, in all their work, they made them work as slaves. They probably had to make millions of bricks and crews would be broken up into different types of labor. Some would fetch the straw. Some would haul the water in the mud. Some would shape the bricks into the molds and allow them to dry in the sun and then move them again. This was very mundane, very physical labor. It wasn't just to get a job done. It was to try to strip these people of any source of identity and creativity. It was the same thing over and over and over again. And it's kind of interesting because that's how you and I begin to look at our lives. The moment I said that God has a calling, you think, no, 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 I don't, I don't play an instrument. I don't, I don't sing. Is this just to try to guilt me into working in the nursery? I mean, just on a side note, people that serve in the nursery, Jesus just loves them more. I mean, I, I don't have a scripture for that. But there's got to be something there, right? If you change other people's diapers, other children, like that counts for something. But here's what this scripture is showing us. Not only from the beginning has God been preparing you and preparing your calling, but that stuff that feels so mundane is actually a part of the plan. It's actually a part of the process. And here's what we'll see. It gets worse. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, here's what he says in verse 16. When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them at the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But verse 17 says, But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Now, the way you became a midwife in that culture is you were unable to have children of your own. And scripture tells us that once these women were faithful in that occupation, God actually blessed them with children of their own. And so the text goes on to verse 22. Then the Pharaoh commanded that all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. So this is a pretty sad story for pastor appreciation, right? We're talking about slavery. We're talking about children being uh, killed. I mean, it's, it's a heavy, heavy text. But here's what I want you to realize. God's people understood the tension that you and I live with every day. They understood the idea of, am I making a difference? Am I doing anything? This isn't a calling. This, this is just a job. This is just a grind. My marriage is just me trying to survive. We, we're, we're, we don't even feel like we're married. We just live in the same house. Parenting is not a calling. I'm just trying to make it to the next day. And you just wonder, is there something more to all of this? Scholars say that Exodus 1 is one of the most difficult passages in Scripture because God is really hardly mentioned, and it feels like he's actually absent in the process. 
Because you don't have this miraculous moment coming in. It just builds and it gets worse, right? Pharaoh doesn't like God's people. Then Pharaoh puts them into slavery. Then Pharaoh begins to try to kill them. But here's what's interesting in this text. Even when God's people cannot see it, God is working. And the same is true for you and I. In that Monday through Friday that you find yourself in, God is not working just in the big, big scheme of things, but in the small details you find so insignificant. The little areas where you are faithful, God is working. Here's how we know this, all right? Why didn't God just send his people right to the promised land? Have you ever wondered that? you ever thought, okay, they're in Egypt. Why doesn't God just get them out? Why leave them in slavery? Here's what I found that's really interesting. The people in the promised land, like people like the Canaanites, were very interested in intermarrying with other cultures. In fact, they, they, they really liked that. They wanted to mix these other cultures together, and so they would intermarry with people from any land. But do you know there was one particular people on the planet at that time who refused, who were so obsessed. Remember when we said Pharaoh wanted to keep Egypt, what, pure, and, 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 and wanted it to just be those people. So the Egyptians were almost racist in that sense, in that they refused to intermarry any, with anyone that was not Egyptian. And what that caused to happen is that God's people, when they went into Egypt, were a small clan of people. But because the Egyptians refused to intermarry with them, they continued to grow and remain pure as God's people. Had they moved straight to the promised land, they would have quickly been wiped out by marrying other cultures. But because they stayed in Egypt, they grew to be a nation. You see, what you call a problem, God calls a process. It was a difficult process. In fact, the process became worse, didn't it? Because it seems like Pharaoh continued to do more things. But do you realize that everything that Pharaoh did actually prepared God's people for their calling? And here's how that looks. When we look at the suffering, Pharaoh decides to enslave the people. But historians tell us that if the God's people would have continued to grow in wealth in Egypt they would have become more and more like individuals. Think about us today. If you're like me, you try to drive into your garage without your neighbors even noticing you live there. The goal is for them to think, does someone live there or not, right? Um, my neighbor that lives next to me, he is a spy for some kind of government thing that's happening. I watched too many episodes of The Blacklist, but I feel like one day he's just gonna take me out, all right? He pulls random garbage bags that are really large and he's just dragging them and he makes eye contact with me when he does that. <laughs> one day he took my trash to the road for me and I said, thank you. And he said, no, your trash smells so terrible that I have to take it out for you so that I don't have to smell it. And I thought, all right, you know what? I'm a little intimidated by you, so I will make sure that I get my trash out on time, right? He just, he just kind of has that look. So I try to avoid him as a good pastor, right? So I just try to kind of hide. Why? I don't have to depend on my neighbor. I have everything I need. And if God's people in Egypt would have continued to prosper as they were in Genesis, they would have been individuals, but bringing them together and forcing them to be slaves actually caused them to identify with their particular culture even more, and it solidified them as a group. It separated them from everyone else. It brought them together as a people, 
and it reminded them of their culture. But the next problem is Pharaoh begins to kill children, which then forces what? Moses, this is an easy one, Moses gets put in a situation where he is, he is going to have to be raised in the palace, but just before that happens, he's going to spend three to four years with his birth mother, and he's going to learn about the culture of his family. You say four is pretty young. At my church, we have a rule. You can talk to my 10-year-old and my 8-year-old, but not my 4-year-old, because my 4-year-old will rat me out for anything and everything, and he will say things at the most inconvenient times, right? So at four, a four-year-old knows what's going on. So at four, Moses knew the culture of the Hebrew people. And then he is sent to live in the palace and receive the best education on the planet. It caused him to be the only person in Egypt who both knew the Hebrew culture, but also had been trained in the greatest Egyptian school for leadership. The entire problem was really a process that brought God's people together that trained Moses for leadership. And if you say, why was it so important that they didn't intermarry with the Egyptians? Because they had to stay as a people throughout history because it was very important that one particular man was born a Jew. And it was Jesus. It all connected and pointed to Jesus and your calling, your job at Enterprise or Blockbuster. Well, Blockbuster doesn't exist. Any of those jobs. Right? The most mundane thing connects to the story that started in Genesis, goes to Jesus, and continues to his return. And if you say, well, I'm not Moses. I don't have that kind of story. Here's what's great. If you read the story, God does not use Moses when he's in a position of strength and power. He actually uses Moses when he's at his weakest. Because if you and I were to write the story, right, Moses would have gotten a PowerPoint presentation when he worked in the palace, and he would have went to the Pharaoh, and he would have said, we can use these people, we should, we should intermarry with these people, these people are good. But no, what happens is Moses tries to help, ends up killing someone, and goes on the run. Now, the story tells us very quickly a few things. Number one, it tells us that Moses flees and he goes to a particular place. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 15, it says, When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But when Moses fled from Pharaoh, he stayed in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. Midian was born from one of, Hebrew, or one of Abraham's other wives and, and became a people group and became a place. But here's what's interesting. The Midianites were the traitors who took Joseph into Egypt. The Midianites were the people Moses escaped to out of Egypt. He's again connecting everything back to Genesis. He's reminding us again, there's a bigger story at play. Now, if you have your Bible and you're in chapter 3, it says, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Here's what's huge. Egyptian culture would never accept being a shepherd. They viewed shepherds as one of the lowest occupations. So for Moses to embrace being a shepherd means that he has fully embraced now who God originally called him to be and not who culture tells him he needs to be. 
The second thing is we know he is working with his father-in-law's flock, which means he is not financially stable enough to own his own herd. So he is pretty much living with his in-laws and he is using their flock to provide for his family, which means Moses probably did not RSVP for his high school reunion, all right? Because nobody wanted to say, hey, you're the guy that used to be in the palace. What do you do now? I'm a shepherd. Oh, you got your own flock? Like, I haven't seen you guys. You guys on Facebook? Where's that, where's that at? Uh, it's actually uh, my father-in-law's. Um, I, I live with, with him, right? This would be a weak moment for Moses. It would be kind of a moment of shame. Not only is he a shepherd, but he's not a successful enough one to own his own flock. Not only is he no longer in the palace, but, but where he's at, where he's actually traveled to, this particular mountain is several weeks away from where his wife and children and father-in-law lived. He drifted several weeks away. Now, for geography purposes, he went there because the grass was better at that season and that time of the year. But we know that God was actually getting him alone. There's an excellent book called Switch, and Switch talks about change and how people change, and they, they talk about a study at Columbia University. And in this study, they asked people to fill out a survey in a room. Some of them filled out the survey by themselves. Some of them filled out the survey in groups of three. And when people would sit down, they began to pump smoke into the room. Okay? 75% of the people that were by themselves got up immediately, went outside, and reported the problem. Less than 30% of the groups of three did anything. They actually sat there until the room filled with smoke because they didn't want to look stupid. They didn't want to do the wrong thing. They didn't want to be the one that freaks out. So they sat there until they hardly could breathe and somebody had to come in and get them out. They did the same test in a slightly different way. One person in a room by themselves, three people in a room. They had a lady outside the room act like she had fallen. They hear what sounds like someone falling down the steps and a scream. Again, 75% of the people that were alone got up and went out. Less than 30% did anything. They heard a woman scream and did nothing. The study said this. More than just peer pressure, there's something called peer presence. We are so afraid of looking foolish or not having the answers that when there's a real problem or a real sense of calling, we will not move in fear of looking dumb. So maybe you're here today and you fall into a few different categories. Maybe you'd say, you know what, I just, I can't serve. I can't I look at my life as a vocation or calling because I'm too hurt. You know, I'm just, I'm just numb. Maybe you're like Moses. Maybe, maybe you haven't been hurt, but you just don't want to look foolish. You don't want to be so arrogant as to walk into your job tomorrow and say, this is a calling. You see, when the burning bush happens and God speaks to Moses, Moses feels just like you and I. In verse 10, it says, come, I will send you, this is God talking, to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel to Egypt, out of Egypt? He said to them, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you. You see, not only did Moses know that he couldn't do it, Moses believed that other people 
believed he couldn't do it. Because all that the people, God's people knew of Moses is that he was raised differently than us. He was raised in a palace. He's a murderer. And he ran away. And Moses says, not only do I know that I can't do it, but they know I can't do it. And maybe that's why you haven't stepped into your calling. Because you think there are people who know your past and will say, what right do you have to tell me anything? And just on the inside, as a pastor, I'll tell you, there are many times where it's hard to get up because you wonder, do people look at me and go, what do you know, right? Especially if you pastor someone maybe that's more successful or, or, or older in age or maybe someone that grew up with you and, 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 and you, you think, they know me, they know my past, they know my situation, they know my struggle, and we allow that fear to keep us from stepping into our calling. Well, we know the story, right? We know that Moses goes on and he does it and, and, and he does this incredible thing. And for some reason, we show a really old version with Charleston Heston during Easter of Moses' life. You know, I feel old now because some of you are like, who's that? You should Google it, all right? They play it during Easter. I'm not sure why. But Moses goes on and does something great. And at the end of Moses' life, they describe in Deuteronomy that there had not been anyone living like Moses because Moses had, had seen God face to face. But if you could have gone back 40 years to when Moses was working for his father-in-law and said, Moses, what they write about you is incredible. But Moses, bigger than that, one day, Jesus, he's going to appear. And when he appears in his glory, you're going to be a part of that conversation. Because I used to feel bad for Moses, because if you know the story of Moses, he doesn't get to go into the promised land. And I always thought, man, that's where he wanted to be. That was the promised land. No, the promised land is bigger than that. He got there. He stood and had a conversation with Jesus. The picture was so much bigger. See, we miss that because suffering is really difficult. And we think that we're called to serve when we feel like we have it all together and we're strong. But Moses was called when he was at his weakest. And if you say, I I'm suffering today, I can't serve, then think about this. Jesus is the better Moses, all right? Moses has this special birth narrative, but he's rejected by his own people. But here's what it says about Jesus. It tells us that he was in the world, and the world knew him, or the world was made through him, yet it did not know him. He came to his own people, and they did not receive him. Jesus was rejected at his birth, Rejected during his ministry, and he was ultimately rejected on the cross. Jesus didn't leave just a palace. He left the glory of heaven. Jesus served you in his greatest suffering so that you would have the power to serve him in your suffering. You don't have to be powerful. You just have to be willing and say, Jesus, my life is a mess Everything is broken, and I am weak. And he looks to you from a cross and says, my body and my blood are for you. And the same power that brought him from the grave is in you to do the good work and the calling he has called you to. There's one last story in the book of Habakkuk, and I'm not going to make you turn there because it's just way too depressing of a book to end with. But Habakkuk's a really neat story. As the band comes, I just want you to focus in on this thought. 
The book of Habakkuk is about a prophet. And this prophet looks at God's people and God's people are not living according to God's way. And it breaks his heart and he says, God, what are you going to do about it? Your people are disobeying you. They're not living according to your law. And God speaks to Habakkuk. Wouldn't it be great if God would speak to us? And God says, Habakkuk, I'm going to send the Babylonians. And they're the most ruthless, bloodthirsty military machine on earth. And they are going to come in and wipe you out and take you into slavery. And Habakkuk was like, I'm sorry, did, did my prayer request get like, mixed up there? Like The way you're going to make it better is you're going to send in this military superpower. And that's exactly what happened. The Babylonians come in and they take many of the Jews out. And historically, here's what happens. Eventually, God's people are free to go, but many of them stayed dispersed around the known world. And later, after Jesus and after the cross and after the resurrection, when they began to preach the good news, the people most open to the gospel were people that were in synagogues dispersed around the world, and they became the first hubs of the church. You see, God's saying, yeah, Habakkuk, this is bad, but it's going to get better. And here's how it gets even better than that. After the Babylonians, eventually in history, we have the Greeks and the Greeks come in and it just seems like they destroy even more stuff. But they had this great idea. Alexander the Great wanted his culture to spread. And so by the time he died, everyone had a second language. Everyone could speak Greek. And it was very convenient because if you were going to put together something like the Bible, wouldn't it be great if everyone knew that language? And then the Romans come in and the Romans destroy and they wreak havoc. But along the way, they build the greatest road system known to man. They take out all the pirates, which means you can travel without being robbed. And they bring peace through violence, but peace like no one had ever seen. And that way, First century Christians who had been dispersed all over the world could plant churches, could share scripture, and travel throughout the world, all of which was impossible before that suffering. What you call a problem, God calls a plan and a process. Do not wait until you feel strong to step into the calling God has on your life. The greatest gift that you could give your pastors today is to say, I want to step into the calling that God has called me to because that's what keeps them up at night. That's why they bring their kids here. And sometimes I know for us, our kids know the church better than they know our home because you got to come and you got to do stuff. And why do we do it? We do it because we want to see that moment where it clicks for you and you say, everything I do matters and everything I do is a part of a story that started in Genesis and goes all the way to Revelation and it all points to, it's all connected, it's all powered, it's all done through King Jesus. It's the greatest gift you could give your pastors. So I don't know if I'm allowed to do this, but I just want to pray. And, and, and if we would just, let's just stand together. And I want to do two things. I want to ask you to pray for your pastor and his family, for your pastors, for, for Kyle and Taryn and their boys and, and their sweet little girl who I hope marries my son. <laughs> but I also, I also want to pray for you. Louis Giglio says, don't, don't judge God's plans 
by just the current circumstances of today because right now, today, your calling is impossible. But you'd say the same thing to Moses and you'd say the same thing to Habakkuk. God is using you and equipping you to do great things in this city and in this place. I don't try to make everything hyper-spiritual, but I'm so glad that I could be here to remind you that your pastors are a gift and they want to lead you and they want to love you and they want to pray for you and they want to stir up the gifts in you because what you do every single moment matters and you won't always see how it's connected and it's going to hurt and it's going to be painful, but one day you will stand and you will see the magnificent story that God is telling through you. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, I thank you for Kyle and Taryn. I thank you for their precious family. I thank you for the difficult seasons, and I thank you for the seasons that feel like victories. But Lord, in you, every effort, every amount of work, everything they do for your glory and for your kingdom is all worth it. And you are using the precious people in this room who are so valuable in your sight and you're using them and this is a body that is moving and is helping and is serving a broken world. And I pray like never before that Kyle and Taryn would walk in a sense of purpose and vision and know that they are called to do this good work that is set before them, that even in the darkest days, Jesus is moving, that even when we can't see that God is at work, and I pray that over these people in this room, that every job, every stay-at-home mom, every mechanic, every doctor, every person in this room is on mission for King Jesus and they have a calling and it doesn't matter despite their past. In fact, you use their past. You use the mess and the brokenness. You are calling us to serve out of our weakness. And we surrender all of that, all of that, all of that to you, Jesus. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen.